This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. About your world. Stay tuned. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. My guest here in the studio is Jenny Martino. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so you went to Goddard, right? I did go to Goddard. Yeah, I'm an I'm an alumna of the Health Arts and Sciences program at Goddard. So how did you find Goddard, and why did you end up going to Goddard? I found Goddard in the most bizarre way, as I think most people do. I was actually at an herb conference in. I think it was South Carolina or North Carolina. And this woman behind me in line was talking about how she was, what she was studying and the curriculum that she was kind of creating for herself. And I had been something of a career student at that point, single mother, um, just trying to get my bachelor's. And I had to turn around and be like, what are you taught? What is this place? And she said Goddard College in Vermont. And pretty much within four weeks, I was visiting Goddard and enrolling and falling madly in love with a place. So that's how I found Goddard. So you fell in love with the place. How, what was it about this place that, that made you fall in love with it? I mean, what did you fall in love with? I fell in love with both... Vermont in general, the landscape, I love being in a place where there are no billboards and I don't feel accosted to buy things. Um, I fell in love with Goddard, the culture here, the the respect for 
really sovereignty and intellectual sovereignty and um yeah it's just a wonderful place so So what what did you study (laughs) what was your study my study was um the lens looking at health through an evolutionary lens and the culmination of my studies was a book that i wrote called the feral ache which is available as a kindle on amazon i self-published it at the the gentle push of my advisor at the time and um so that kind of was the beginning of really looking at health through a different lens than the one that we the mainstream colonized um military industrial lens of health so I suspect that's the that's where we're going this morning is is <laughs> is teasing out that that whole uh, spectrum there. Sure. So the feral ache. Yes. That's a very interesting sounding title. I looked online for for anything connected to your name. I couldn't. I didn't find that. Um, I I had a website that I took down and but it is available on Amazon. It should be. It should still be. Um yeah, it's out there and the um the subtitle is how a science virgin decided to go all the way. So a science virgin <laughs> decided to go all the way. Explain <clears throat> that. <laughs> I was raised I I actually from pre-kindergarten to 12th grade, I went to a private um evangelical Christian school in Haiti, which is the country where I am from, born and raised. Um And science was always filtered through the lens of the Bible. So it wasn't very rigorous study. And in one of my first science classes at the college level, it was a biology class. And in 45 minutes, like just with some dish soap and some salt and some other household ingredients, we had mashed a strawberry and wound the DNA of the strawberry around a toothpick. And I was completely smitten. I was a goner. I was like, this is amazing. Wait a minute. Where did, you did this in, your, in the school in Haiti? Uh, no. The, the strawberry happened in um, Armstrong Atlantic State University in Savannah, Georgia, oh, okay. which is um, where I went after m- leaving the, Haiti to... F- Kind of pretty much as a refugee from the kidnapping crisis to live in Savannah. Mm-hmm. So, so how old were you when you when you escaped? When you? Oh, I was I was an old soul. I was thirty. I was in my thirties, early thirties. Yep. So you went to you started going to school late. You you lost your scientific virginity late in life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's pretty magical because science is is very magical. Science, I find incredibly magical, and there is there is um, some pushback against science. <clears throat> Excuse me, particularly with um, those that are kind of quote unquote in the alternative um, life path. I but I find science so beautiful in the questioning, and and true science is always checking itself and acknowledging how little we know and that there's so much mystery and so much 
so much more to discover. Um, I just find it, I find it beautiful. Yes, I'm, I'm one of those people who tends to push back on, on the current state of like mainstream science, the kind of entrenched, institutionalized science that says we, we know it all, and, and, you, and unless you can prove otherwise, you know, this is it. Absolutely. I, I agree with that, with what you're saying, and the, the reductionist... Because I, we're all born scientists. We're all born observing and testing and experimenting and find out what happens when I do this. And, and once science has been colonized and through the civilized mindset that we have to figure out, like there's this reduction that happens. And it's a necessary thing if you want to figure out what is causing something, quote unquote. Um, but that thing never gets plugged back into the hole. And... There are so many variables that create an occurrence that I think that science has has become the face of science is this really strident and compartmentalized and scary thing that I feel has really lost the essence of what true science is. Yeah, I'm, I've been reading this book and this morning I was reading you know, before I got myself out of bed, this guy's talking about complexity theory. Mm. And complexity theory is a very interesting thing. And it pertains directly to what we're talking about right now, science. I'm not going to go into any of it because it, it's... Too a, complex? It's not <laughs> so much that it's too complex, but it, it's... The essence of it to me is that life is, is a continually emerging thing. Yes. And that's what makes science so wondrous. And it's the wonder yes. of science that that is what makes science so rich and so magical and so wonderful. And unfortunately, people as they get older have a tendency to lose touch with that wonder. And I think that's the problem. And when you lose touch with wonder, I think you tend to fall into this thing that, that we see in our political system, in in everything in our in our current world where people try to reduce things into recognizable patterns that you can understand and continue from the past, present, and into the future unchanged. And that's the exact opposite of complexity theory. Absolutely. And I'm so fascinated that you brought that up because um, in Franz Fanon's work, The Wretched of the Earth, he talks about how the colonized, the Western European colonized value of stasis is so prevalent. And when you were talking about how science is wondrous, I would like to to add, I think that life is wondrous. Life is what's really wondrous. And science can be such a, a fascinating lens to look at the wonder of life. And it is very sad that what is happening in some scientific circles, it takes 30 to 40 years for the rest of us to know about it because we are so invested and so educated and so brainwashed to value stasis and things remaining constantly the same. And there's, there's a thing in, in human nature that craves the illusory security of stasis. Yes. And I don't, I don't know. 
see, this is where where I find it fascinating because I'm not even sure that we really even know what human nature actually is because we're so civilized and so colonized and so out of touch with what it even means to be human that I really don't know what human nature actually is. And safety is completely illusory. It's a complete illusion. Well, you talked about this 30 or 40 year lag between learning, catching up with what science is discovering, but that happens in a sense that happens in the evolutionary journey of each human being. We, have, we go through an evolutionary process of learning, learning how to learn, learning how to see, learning how to relate, to converse with our environment and the world around, you know, the world around us, and also the environment that's emerging within ourselves in relation to our relationship to the world around us. And part of that evolutionary journey is going through all of those pre-adolescent and adolescent phases of understanding and, and thinking or, or non-thinking. Possibly. I wonder, though, if it's not more a question of relearning. I, um, I feel that I knew so much more at six years old than I do now. Unlearning. <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of unlearning and relearning. And we're born with all the tools and by the time that we are probably 12 years old, there has been a lot of concerted investment and a lot of time spent crushing our innate understanding and our innate knowing of how to relate to others and how to be in the world because we're all born sovereign and there is so much effort and money and time that goes into destroying that sovereignty and so this evolution that you're speaking about is a necessary evolution in this societal context. Um, Arthur Haynes, who is a botanist and he speaks a lot about traditional life ways, has mentioned that by the time a hunter-gatherer child is eight years old, they have all the knowledge that they need to survive on their own in the wild. And I can barely make a fire with my bow drill. And I'm 43. And you're ahead of most people. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just a matter of how we're being educated, what information we're being allowed to have, what information we have access to. And the first, the first and most important source of information that we get cut off from is our body. And... It takes a lot of time for those of us that are in this particular societal context to even be aware of what's happening below the neck. And when you say aware of our body, what do you mean by that? Like, what, is, what does it mean to be aware of our bodies? And what is it that we can become aware of in our bodies? Wow, that's a, that's a really broad question. Um, where do you begin? Um, because that's an evolutionary journey as well, particularly for people who get lost in, in the Western culture. Yes, most definitely. Because the Western culture, well, first of all, what I do want to say is there is, there is no such, this is, this is kind of the field of embodiment studies and embodiment 
It is not possible to be disembodied. We, we are always in our body. We are always aware of some part of our body. It's just that in the Western, and we'll just use that as shorthand for the society that most of us live in, the Western cultural context really worships at the shrine of the brain. Like, and devalues the rest. And devalues the rest completely. However, your consciousness can move throughout your body. You can be aware of where your toes are. You can be aware of that pain in your lower back. You can be aware of, because all of every single one of your cells is equipped with proprioceptors. And that's just like a $40 word to explain that your cells know where they are in space and that they know that they're part of you. And that they're in constant communication with the rest of us. Absolutely. In constant communication. Um, so awareness is something that you can actually move around. And my very favorite embodiment practice is to be barefoot. That's my absolute favorite <laughs> because the soles of your feet are as far as you can get from your scalp as possible. And it actually puts you in touch with the actual earth, the planet. It introduces you to textures. It starts to change the map of your brain. It's just, that's where I would begin actually is just take your shoes off. And go outside. Go outside, yeah. I wish yeah. we had some either dirt or grass here. Or yeah. sand, sand is, is my favorite. Warm sand on the beach oh. to walk in. Yeah, I'm from the islands, so I love myself some warm sand. <laughs> <laughs> so I can totally relate to that. So talk about what is the value of having that kind of embodied awareness in our body below our neck? Oh, it's... Because in our culture... We, we do put all the value in our head because that's where everything comes from, supposedly, that everything below that is animalistic and that that's kind of antithetical to Western civilization, Absolutely. according to most people. Absolutely. So what is the value of being conscious, being aware of our body and really being in our body and revaluing that experience? Well... Everything that happens, happens to the body entire. Um, once you are aware of your body, you start to reclaim your sovereignty and you start to reclaim your agency. It brings a lot of often very painful awareness about the stresses and the pain that we actually live in all the time. So part of one result of becoming aware of your body is some activism. It's really difficult to continue to be complacent when, when the awareness of what the body has to suffer on a daily basis um, rises to the surface. The other value is empathy and compassion because violence happens to bodies. Colonization happens to bodies. It's not a theoretical brain space where we can just talk about in academic circles, it's happening and violence is happening to bodies. Um, empathy and compassion are so important in the motivation to stand in solidarity with others. And it leads to very different choices. It leads to very different choices. Once once I was very aware of my, became re-aware of my body as aware, almost as aware as I was when I was six years old, um, the choices I made with what I ate, with where I moved, with how I slept, 
all of these things became very different and those choices trickle down to change society that's why that's the value of being aware of the body it changes things so we live in a culture where most people are up in their heads they're Mm -hmm. pretty much completely disconnected from their bodies even though they do live in their bodies Mm -hmm. as you said we're all in our bodies yes everything happens in our bodies yes But we do have the choice to focus our attention where we, where we, well, where we think we want to, where, where we place our values. Absolutely. So when people are isolated in in their heads and they've lived in their heads for many, many years, many people for decades, and they've completely forgotten the wonderful, wonderfully pleasurable experience of being a child. Mm and being in our bodies, what happens to the rest of the world? What happens to our relationship with the world around us and to our relationships with with people and things and the way, yeah, all. Yes, um, there's so much that you just said there. I just wanted to address really quickly, not everybody had a wonderful childhood. And so sometimes the escape into the brain is a protective mechanism. And descending back into the body is is really a scary thing. Um, the other thing that you touched on about relationship, that the body is how we relate to everything. It's how we relate to the wind. It's how we relate to another person. It's how we relate to the sun. And the relationships that we start to develop become very different I just lost the thread of what I was going to say because you said something so amazing. Do you remember what it was I said? I do not remember. Huh. Well. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> I do remember what I was going to say. That our bodies are, are not just individual pods. They're, they are contextual. And I, I really see us much more as a grove of birch trees than than anything else. Um, when people are in conversation and looking in, into each other's eyes and breathing, their hearts, their heartbeats will sync up, their breathing will sync up. Um, and that is a beautiful awareness that we actually affect each other in this way. We are nourishment for each other. And when one of us is hurting, that is also felt and that feeds back into the empathy and compassion piece because my my compassion for someone is felt because I feel what they feel and on a very physiological level. And when I shut myself off from that, it's easy for me to perpetuate and be part of complicit with whatever the system is that is keeping that person suffering. So we're talking about the dynamic between the sense of separation and the sense of connection. Sure. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about the mycelial world. Yes. Where there's this huge, like supposedly three quarters of the planet or two thirds of the planet is actually covered subterraneanly by these bodies, Mm -hmm. massive bodies of mycelial culture or mycelial life. And then individual mushrooms or fungi emerge periodically from this fruiting body that Mm. lives in mass and that 
reminded me of the notion of the field from which everything seems to emerge according to that theory, which a lot of different science, well, not a lot, but a, there are a lot of different um, fields of study that, that are discovering that, mm. including physicists. I mean, the early quantum physicists were all saying, this is, this is it. This is where it, it's all emerging from, and that that's the basis. And then it, it disappeared mm. until very recently. People are, are bringing it back, but they're getting a lot of pushback. But anyway, back to those the, that mycelial yeah. metaphor, which, again, it's going back to that same principle of interdependence and interconnection, that we're not separate. We have the illusion of separation. And even Einstein said, he has a, a very famous quote, which I don't remember exactly, that the sense of separation is an illusion. Yes. And absolutely. It absolutely is. And when, when I talk about the importance of bodies, I'm, I want to make clear that it's not just the human animal. It's not that just Homo sapiens body that is important. Um, all bodies are important. Because it, essentially it's one body. <laughs> because essentially it's one body. The whole universe. Is one body. To, yes. to take it to that level. And perhaps, and including even the multiverse. Quite possibly. One, yes. one body, if we don't look at it as a, in the particle sense, but we look yes. at it in the wave sense. Absolutely. Because um, when you're talking about mycelium, I um, I have fibromyalgia and one of the things I think about quite a bit is actually my fascia. And fascia, for those of you that have ever like prepared chicken, fascia is that white like um, membrane between the skin and the meat of the chicken. And we also have it. And I, I'm also an artist and I was making these um, photographic weavings between um, some nudes of myself and some pictures of mushrooms that I had taken. Because our body is very much a physical, actual thing. And we can also think about it as metaphor for everything. Um, because I am, I am a body. I am also part of the greater body of the planet. And my body is made up of trillions of bodies. I have trillions of cells. And only one-tenth of those cells are actually me. The, the rest are bacteria. And... So this idea of separateness and me as an actual separate entity, th those get really messy and fluid and it's not, a, it's not really a thing to be separate. I'm always struck when people, like you even, you even used that terminology, you said that only 10% 10, 10 of me is me. Yeah. And how do we make those distinctions between right. the bacteria that live in our bodies, the, their, par their quote-unquote parasites in our bodies? There's all kinds of living organisms, and even some that, that science questions whether they're alive, really mm. living or not. And they're all living in symbiotic relationship yes. with each other within us. So what makes us us, and what's other than us inside of us? I have no idea. 
<laughs> and and that ex- and as you said, that extends outwardly yes. in different nested levels, as far as we can imagine. Absolutely, and only limited by our ability to imagine. Absolutely, and when you were talking about the wonder of life and how wondrous life is. That's that's what we are. We're, bodies are just vehicles for life to express itself. And, and experience itself. And experience itself. And experiment and play and find out what new sorts of ways it can express itself in. And we're just, chain, we're just a link in the chain. Um, I am a link between what has all come before and what will come after. It's, it's both very humbling and also awe-inspiring to me. And ever-growing, ever-expanding, ever-changing, ever-evolving, ever-emerging. Yes. Not stasis. Not stasis. Not the colonized view, not the colonized value so at all. Wh- so whatever, whatever we learn, there's, there's always so much more to learn. And the thing that I've, that more and more I come to realize as I get older is that the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. That yes. the universe expands way faster than my <laughs> the speed of my learning, <laughs> <laughs> or so it seems. Yeah, and 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 at the same time, I feel that learning is something that is be directed. But what I mean by that is, education can either be something that frees us. Or further enslaves us to a certain way of thinking and a certain system that is in place. And so the evolution of that learning, it all depends on where that tool or weapon is focused. What are we learning? And the fluidity of that understanding. Yes. Learning. Yeah. Like whether it is like water or if it becomes set like concrete. Yes. Yeah. And it's like an impulse to make things constant, like concrete, that so that they don't shift, they don't change. I think that's a I think that's a colonized thing. I don't I don't think it's a human thing to want things to be concrete. I think that's a value that we have been inculcated with. But it isn't that something that is unique to humans? That creation? The creation of wanting things to be concrete? To be stasis, to be secure, I to think, be I think that's unique to colonized and civilized humans. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a natural, innate thing at all, because the way... Not of, initially. Or, or ever, it, it will never become natural and innate. Okay. It becomes normalized. It's a, res- it's a response. Uh, it's, it's an inculcated value. It's... A, it's um, when it's say, doctrination, but but it begins somewhere, right? It become it begins with um, being educated in a colonized worldview. But even that education, <laughs> yes. even that colonized education, begins emerges from somewhere. Yes, and I mean it is of my opinion, and there is some backing for this opinion. But my opinion is that the colonized way of viewing the world is the result of basically agriculture and it actually changed the human animal into something else that thinks a little differently because it is a form of 
I hate using this term, but mental illness, it is a form of mental illness. There's something wrong with our brains. Now you're talking about the colonized brain. Yes, I am. Yes. I recognize that the emergence of agriculture, the creation of agriculture as being probably the first foundational cornerstone of this impulse to control and maintain security and stasis in yes. our lives. But still, I'm wanting to return back to what sure. you, something you said earlier about not all children grew up having enjoyable experiences in their body. Yeah. Many children, many, many around the world have experienced a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, th that's my sense of where the answer to the question that I asked you, where that emerges from, emerges from trauma, because we're in relation to the world around us. And, and if we have a traumatic experience on any level, we tend to pull back. And then how we integrate that experience, what we learn from that determines, and again, this is, this is an aspect of complexity theory and the science, the scientific approach to life. You know, the ob observation of our relationships and our experience with the world around us, because there's no such thing as objectivity. It's all subjective. Yes. It's all interrelational dynamics that we learn from. Right. And what is really interesting about what you're saying about um, children in trauma, these isolated yeah, see, this, these are nesting dolls, so I'm trying to pull them apart so that we can kind of look at them. Um, this living in, in ways that are not the ways of the human animal that we lived in for hundreds of thousands of years before the onset of agriculture, which radically changed our ways of relating to each other, radically changed um, family dynamics. Before all of that happened, we were living in family groups of maybe 30 to 150 people. And this idea of a traumatized child then having to deal with their trauma on their own, it's really, really difficult for us to even comprehend what it was like to live in a family group where our parents were pretty much everybody. And there was not really the possibility of being isolated. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was, it, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a human thing to deal with isolation. Um, so when you're talking about this trauma, because trauma is a part of life, we, we all experience trauma. However, when we're living within the ways that nature, that we emerged from nature, all of the things are already in place for us to process trauma, just like all animals know how to process trauma. All animals know, we know, it has just been this... Or we used to know. Right. And... Hopefully. Yeah, I, I, and I still think that children know. It's just overridden. It's... They know. But in tribal societies, they had their shamans or, right. or their, their wise people who lived out on the fringe it was always there was always somebody on the fringe somebody who had deeper insight had the handing down of of insight yeah. into these dynamics that the rest of the tribe didn't know about or didn't need to know about because they were just going about the business of their lives 
Yeah, and maybe, and this this gets messy because we don't really have the stories from the people themselves. This is all through our colonized, educated eyeballs looking at this through our own stories and our own lens. Right, we're filtering it through. Absolutely. So it's really difficult, even for me, to speak with a whole lot of authority about, well, this is how it was. Because we really don't know. And and I think that's really uncomfortable for us to admit that we really have no idea what it actually means to be a human being. Right. And the only way that we really can get any sense of that is to be really present in our bodies. Boom. In this moment. Yes. This is it. <laughs> this, this is, is the it. only way. This is it. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, everything emerges again including the cycles of pleasure and pain. Yes. Which if we, if somehow or other we can stay present in our bodies, we can deal with. Yes. In a natural, healthy way. But, again, I'm I'm thinking back to the traditions of, of shamans and healers and wise elders who can help people deal with the things that they aren't able to deal with naturally on their own and when those experiences then get stuck in the body Mm -hmm. or the psyche Mm -hmm. however you want to talk about it and get passed on generationally yeah and it goes beyond just generations because it enters into that quote-unquote field of experience of of energy and information that everyone is connected to yes so the the role of the healer, the shaman, the the wise elder is so important. Or, as you say, as best as we can understand, looking back. Yeah. Good morning. You're on the air. What about people who are deeply into yoga, the sort of people who go to India and do it five hours a day? Are they in touch with their bodies? Um, I I am not an expert on yoga. I've practiced yoga every once in a while. Um, the practice of yoga began as a way to actually silence the body in order to meditate and enter the mind. So Pure mind. Whatever that means. Right. I have pure is one of my least favorite words. <laughs> right. As opposed to the colonized mind. Sure. <laughs> right. Pure. Maybe. Right. Yeah. What is purity? Yeah, purity. Ugh, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um... So the practice of yoga in and of itself, that's tricky because the, the intention of all of these exercises was actually to silence the body. So that's all I'm going to say about that. To be clear in the body, perhaps. For the body to be clear enough that we can release it in the moment. Right. And that's, for me, from my position that's a bit problematic because I never want to release my body. I never want to silence it. I never want to cut off the communication of my body. Yes. I'm reflecting back on my experience of this. Okay. I think, yes, I I imagine there are people who, who do get obsessed with the notion of silencing the body, but I think in terms of there are times when the body itself will settle and become silent the way a body of water will become so still sure. that you can see to the bottom. The way that we practice yoga in the West is quite different, I'm sure. 
and I'm just speaking about the intention and the onset of the practice thousands of years ago. Um, I did read the the texts. Oh goodness, twenty twenty five years ago. So it's all a bit fuzzy. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the intention of the creation of the practice that was the intention was to silence the body um, and to make to make it still to to keep the the comments of the body quiet so you could sit for hours and hours um, was that Patanjali yes yeah I think so he was kind of a he was kind of rigid in in some ways yeah and and I f- I wasn't particularly enthralled with with his approach yeah, and I mean to be perf- to be very clear, like my tradition, I come from Haiti and voodoo is the the cultural practice there and if there's anything that's the total opposite of rigidity, that's that's what it is. And so my preference, my personal cultural preference and positionality with the way I was raised is to go dance to drums and not to sit still for hours. But that's that's where I'm coming from. So, so, how much experience do you have with this? You left Haiti in your 30s. You say I did. So mm-hmm. you you really were totally born and bred. Born and bred. So, talk about that experience that you had of dancing and losing yourself in that mysterious realm of the body space. Because the body does include the mind. I don't see any real separation between body and mind. No, no, neither do I. I actually believe that the mind is actually um, the sum total of all the experiences that the body has had. Um, I both danced professionally in the National Dance Company where we danced the traditional folkloric voodoo dances. And the drumbeat, after a two-hour class, I would kind of enter something of a trance-like state where... I just felt completely all body. And I've gone to a couple ceremonies. Um, How to speak about that experience. It's difficult to speak about that experience because it's a wordless experience. And English is not my first language. So I'm two steps removed from being able to describe the experience. It is certainly highly sensual. All of the senses are very aware and alert and engaged and it's a thoughtless experience so you talk about the highly sensual experience that the senses are engaged are the senses in a sense merged with the environment so that there's no sense of separation well absolutely and the senses are always merged with the environment it's just i'm no longer thinking about the fact that my senses are merged with the environment and you no longer have an awareness of, of a separate self. Correct. Yeah. Because that, to me, that, that's the experience, that's the true experience of being present. Yes. In the moment. Yes. And in that sense, the present moment, that experience of the present moment is the portal to everything. Yes. In each moment. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where the magic and mystery and everything yeah, is all, eternally. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and continually emerging so that it's not a stasis of of a sense of presence and experience. Right. Because I mean all that we actually have is the present moment. Right. That it, that is all that we have. Yes. Um 
And the brain evolved to solve problems and to take in information and create the next step, figure out what to do. But all that information is coming from the body. We've, we've inverted the process where now we sit and think about what to do next, where the, the natural process is to be in motion and then the, the brain takes in all that information and decides what the next step is. And since now we spend most of our time so not in motion, so immobile, so sedentary, that the brain, in my opinion, is just bored to death. It is just bored. And so it just creates all this chatter and all these possibilities of what we could be doing right now. And in that way, there becomes this massive barrier between just being in the present moment because there's just so much brain talk and so much brain chatter. So it's, it's a system out of balance. Oh, completely. Because I, I, I reflect back on, on Gurdjieff and he talked about the three, we're three brain beings. There's the body, the heart, and the brain, the mind, heart, body, which are not separate, but they are in relationship. And when any one of the three atrophy or, or get lazy or just fall away, then we're out of balance. Certainly. And of course, um, the other brain, the second brain, the gut, the enteric brain, this is something that was I was borderline obsessed with when I was an undergrad was the enteric brain. And because the enteric brain is our is our gut. That's where the bacteria live that aren't necessarily us, yet we are living in symbiosis with them. And what happens when we eat in a way that is not sustainable or natural to our species, we change the bacteria that are there and it's completely different colonies. So it's differently colonized. And we have changed the primary way of understanding the world and our brain because we are no longer eating correctly we're no longer thinking correctly yes that's that's something i've noticed that the way i eat can not only affect my body but it affects my moods the way yes. i think yes the way i perceive and the way i feel Absolutely. In response to all that. Because we, we, we see ourselves as thinking and all of these things coming from the organ of the brain, of the gray matter, but that's not where any of it comes from. It's all coming from the body. Mm-hmm. So this thing about the, the brain and the gray matter, the, it's really just a processor of all the information that's, that's, yes. that's being channeled to it through our nervous system. Yes. And, and it's not a one-way street. No. And for, for those that remember learning about the reflex, there are even things that happen that don't even make it to your brain. Like your body processes it so that your brain doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So life is, is incredibly mysterious and amazing and wondrous the more we delve into it. Yes. And, and the more we, we do delve into it, the more we realize, God, there's so much out there. There's so much we don't know. And there's so much more. It's this massive, huge horizon that exists on, on levels 
dimensional levels that are even beyond what we know we can perceive at. Absolutely. And we don't even, for me, the wonder just begins with your own body. Like the universe is a magical, wonderful place, but so are you. You are part of this universe. And what is happening in your body is just as magical and fascinating and wondrous. And it's an easy, easy place to begin this exploration because it's always with you. And it's not just the body in the physical sense that most people think of muscles, bones. There's, there's the emotional body as, as well, which, which is in the body. Which is in the body. It's a subtler or, or just a different level of, of sense of being in the body. Sure. However, it is, it is the body the, mm. in the sense that your emotions are actual things that your body produces through hormones, through neurotransmitters, through all of these things that actually are tangible muscle, flesh, fascia, bone things. And your body holds on to emotions because they are not an ethereal thing that's just floating along somewhere in the air. It's something your body actually produces and is tangible. So. And for anybody who studied massage, particularly deep tissue massage, yes. Rolfing was talked about how trauma experience, all experience gets lodged in the body, that memory is stored in the body, yes. that the mind the subconscious mind is the body. Yes. It's the body of the bo- of the mind, in a sense. Yes. Even though they're not separate. Correct. And I think it's only subconscious in our societal life ways. I don't think it's subconscious naturally. I think that it is fully conscious in an, a human being that is still intact. Depending on, on how you define fully conscious. I think... Sure. I like... The way I think of it is we're, we're directly, I mean, all that information, all that is always available to us. Sure. And we can tap into it whenever we want to. One thing that I think we, many of us experience in this world, when we're trying to remember something, we can't remember things, that things tend to get lost. Mm. And, we, and it's a sense of disconnection mm. on that level. Mm. And that just hints at a, a much vaster degree of disconnection yes that we experience as we explore that experience in yes. ourselves sure yeah. being a human being is a is pretty amazing funny thing i i think so i i really love that i'm human <laughs> <laughs> and that's another thing about this complexity theory it's emerging from science which is the brain, the, the mind, people in their ivory towers thinking up these things, but they're they're looping back around to the truth, to a more accurate sense of the, like quantum physics. It's a very similar thing that we're having these experiences and we're learning from the experiences. We have memory of the experience, and our relationships grow and evolve from our experiences and our memory of our experiences and the way we relate and integrate those experiences and how they and how we adapt to them we learn from them and change from them and this is the process of life yes and i get excited when i see science 
looping around every once in a while, one of their tangents or one of their loops will actually return back to Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Most definitely. Mm. So when we were talking about this, you were were talking about wanting to talk about the embodiment of colonized values. Mm. We haven't really gotten that much, although we have been We've alluding been to around it a, a it, lot. Yes. So what is this thing about colonized values and how they become embodied? Mm. We are all colonized. That's the first thing that we need to understand. It is a spectrum. Some of us are actually the colonizers. Um, and or more engaged on that level yes, of the equation. Yes. And some of us have been colonized all of us. All of us. Just at least to some degree. Yes. And the large part of that, for me, the two goals of colonization are to create a monoculture and to create passive life forms. That is what colonization does. And the values and the methods to support those things are things such as valuing stasis, valuing purity and wiping things out, sterility, valuing submissiveness, valuing these ideas that somebody else will tell you how to live and how to be and to be a good citizen and obey. These are all values of colonization. And the way that we embody them, they are vast and we are often... We can't even see them because they are just life to us. They become the water that we're swimming in. Absolutely, absolutely. That the fish swim in. That the fish swim in. But, for example, the fact that we sit all day, for the most of us, that is what we do. We sit. And one of the first things that colonizers do when they decide to colonize a place is to grab the children of those who are there, whose land it actually is, and put them in chairs in a classroom. And this actually changes your anatomy. It changes your body's capability to gain an upright posture. And it tucks in your pelvis. It atrophies your psoas muscle it cuts it rounds your shoulders which means you can't take a deep breath anymore and these are all the postures of subservience and it creates one way of thinking it creates a monoculture by wiping something else out it's a cultural genocide and so that is just one small example of what i'm talking about and when i talk about passive life forms I don't just mean humans. We, we colonize by wiping out and stripping the, the land of the native plants that can survive without us. They don't need us. And we plant dom- these domestic garden plants that demand so much time and attention. They are receivers. They, they need attention. They need us. And we usually do that by planting And it becomes a monoculture of corn or other things like that, where we've wiped out diversity. And when you look around at our culture, when somebody veers outside of it, either in their their presentation, the way they cut their hair or anything like that, that threatens 
the colonized monocultural value. So it's, it is also one of these things that's really complex and, but that's kind of the beginning, I think. Mm. I'm speaking with Jenny Martino and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Education is, mm. is a hot topic. Yeah. And I'm fascinated with education. I've always been interested in education. I went to public schools in this country. Yeah. I did one year, I'm Jewish, and I did one year of Catholic school in southern Spain. Ooh. And that was an interesting experience, going from um, large public schools in New York City to a two-room schoolhouse in Spain, southern Spain, girls in one room and boys of all ages in one room. And that was a radically different experience. But even there, it's a culture of colonization. Absolutely. The difference, I think, is in Spain, it was much more on the surface. Yes. Whereas here, there's like a science to it. Mm. And it evolves, or some might say it devolves. Mm -hmm. And... If it wasn't for my parents, particularly my father, I probably would have fallen much more deeply into that colonization. But I, I was getting the counterculture perspective as I was growing up, so that even while I was in school, I could see that what was going on was not right, some aspects of it. I wasn't really old enough to really fully grasp things, but I just could feel them in my body, that mm. something was not right. Mm. And there were certain very distinct ways that I responded and recognized it. And after we go through education, those of us who, who recognize it have to go through a life of unlearning everything. <sighs> yes. Yes. There are I, I like to separate in my mind to make things clear for myself the difference between the world and the earth. And the world is something that humans, we've created the world. And when we talk about the real world, we're talking about something that's actually not real at all. It's, it's just something that we've all agreed to um, behave in. And for the most part, we are all educated for tools to operate in the world and completely helpless and uneducated in relating to the earth. Um, and I find that such a tragedy because civilizations rise and fall all the time and the world is precarious and fragile and it's not real. It is, it is our, it's that illusory safety, the, the, the world will always be there, but it won't. The earth, however, is, is there. We may not always be here, but the earth is there. And we are all pulled away from the earth in this process of education to become more effective cogs in the wheel of the world. Of the imaginary world the that imaginary we're all agreeing. world. It's the consensus reality. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That really is in pretty much its totality is completely separate 
from the earth. Yes, and that is what most education is, is that perpetuation and indoctrinating children to believe that this separateness is a thing, that it's a real thing. And that it's more real than anything else. Yes. And that that earth and that dirt and the greenery and yes. the rain and, and nature and animals, Yes, those, that's not real. That We create zoos yes. and we create movies and we create all sorts of artificial representations of it that create an artificial barrier, like a glass yes. barrier through which we can look at it as a separate reality. Yes, and you've just described houses and cities that we we also are an animal living in a zoo. We have zooed up ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Knowledge it can free us and it can jail us. It can enslave us. Yep. It can limit us. And that's why the body is so important because it always will take you towards freedom. That's where it wants to be. It wants to be sovereign. It wants to be out there walking in the woods or... Um, engaging with its natural environment that's where it's most happy this i i love this term sovereign and sovereignty yes and it's often talked about just in terms of royalty yes but that's a metaphor for who we really are absolutely and it's been such an important word for me because i actually grew up like i mentioned in haiti and that's where i'm from and I learned very early on about how important national sovereignty is, that a nation must be recognized as sovereign, and what happens on a national level when a nation's sovereignty is not respected. And then I just took that as further and think about my individual sovereignty and my individual sovereignty by sheer definition must recognize every other individual's sovereignty and sovereignty is my guiding like it's my word it's my totem word it's very important to me and you talk about it as being an experience that we can really only have in our bodies absolutely directly directly in our bodies directly in it's that in the very moment that we're that we get to experience it in. Yes, it's all about consent. It's all about non-initiation of violence. It's all about these things. And when we say that the only way you can be successful in this world is to sit here for eight hours, that's, that's quite a violation of sovereignty. Mm. You're from Haiti and you brought up national sovereignty. Yes. And Haiti is, prob is one of the nations of the world who have been trampled upon yes. most and after that have been disregarded yes. the most, has been subject to some of the most devastating circumstances environmentally, politically, yes. and then completely dismissed as being irrelevant. What, why? It seems so Haiti has, has been singled out very uniquely in that way. and I Oh, that's a very easy answer to give you, actually, as to why. Um, Haiti is the first free black republic and has never been forgiven for it and will always be punished for that. It, mm. is, it is the seat of revolution against colonized ideas. It is where freedom was first really understood in the colonized world. And 
the inherent racism of colonization will never allow Haiti to be forgiven for that transgression. It's amazing how that history lesson is so deeply ingrained in the colonized world. Yes. To the degree that it won't it won't be let go of. They won't let go of that. No, and the propaganda against Haitians and the way that Haitians are viewed throughout the world are a result of colonized values regaining the intellectual power to punish an entire people. And when I say it's the first free black republic, it's very difficult for people to who have grown up where um, they are the majority those that are light-skinned, to even comprehend what it means to be in a nation where every single person just about is dark, dark-skinned. Dark, dark-skinned. Yeah. Right. The epitome of the other. The epitome of the other, rising up and gaining victory over the colonized colonizer. Yeah. And for me, as a white person living in traditionally the, the safest country the most stasis enjoying yes. country on the planet. I'm aware of that, mm. but I don't know it in my body. Yes. I mean, I have no experience of that. I'm Jewish, so I have memories of the fear and trauma of that. And growing up, I was surrounded by that fear to some degree. Mm -hmm. But for an entire nation and every every aspect of it to be other mm -hmm. and to be hated, to, to truly be put down and devalued to the degree. I mean, Haiti is, is the poster child of being dissed, of being devalued yes. and being put down and having a massive grudge held against it in perpetuity. Absolutely. And my experience of growing up there was really quite unique. I am, this is the radio, so I am biracial. Um, however, if you just saw me walking down the street, you would assume that I was white. I'm really quite light-skinned. And so I actually grew up with the experience of being other. I I didn't grow up with the embodied experience of being in the majority. And so being in the United States is just this really bizarre experience for me of, it's almost like my entire world is being turned inside out when I'm here. It's, it's just very strange. How is that? I hear that and I can understand intellectually, but I don't know that experience. Yeah, it's really difficult to describe. Um, Nobody, nobody knows just by looking at me that I am other. I still identify in my head as being other. Um, but when I am home, when I am in Haiti, I mean, I don't blend into a crowd. That's for sure. You know, and it's, it's that complete lack of, yeah, it's really difficult to explain to people that are surrounded by people that look like them the completely disconcerting, often terrifying experience of being so, looking so different that there's nowhere to hide. And, and that is so many people here in the United States are dealing with that right now. They're right now dealing with the reality of being targeted just because of the way that they look and knowing that there's nowhere to hide. 
and that that is their experience in their body and this is why it's so important to understand that violence happens in bodies and to bodies and some people's embodied experience is radically different than yours and mm. and really the only way to understand that is to experience it in your body yes and if you haven't had that experience it's hard to connect with it. It's very difficult. It's very, and, very difficult. And right now in our society, we are coming to a new head of yes. of lowness in terms. It seems as though <laughs> yes. we, we we were making so much progress in terms of racial awareness and and openness and acceptance and and dissipation of that sense of otherness and fear of the other, and yet. It appears that that was an illusion. It absolutely is an illusion. Absolutely. And that it's been an illusion all along? Yes. Um, and what that, ha, what's been going... What What is really going on? What, what, oh how, my goodness. What's your sense of, of this? Because for many white people who really just see what's going on on the surface and think, oh, humanity's making all these great strides, we're out of touch. Yes. I mean, completely... Completely out of touch. Oblivious and out of touch. Yes. Thank you for saying it. I didn't want to be the one to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you talk about Haiti and what you were saying, that that's happening all the time. Colonize, colonization is not something that's in the past. It's continuously happening. And once, once that awareness is reached and you start listening to people that are in power and political power speak... Um, just even saying things like, you know, here on this land of America, like already a, an uncolonized mind will pick that apart to shreds. This land isn't America. That's what we call it now because we some white people came and took it. Um, and those of us that live in a body that is not the body that is approved of or that holds power in this society, we're aware all the time, all the time, that that this propaganda that everything is fine is, is just propaganda. <laughs> As you're talking about this, I am reflecting, I do have a bit of that experience growing mm. up as a child. I was a small blonde child growing mm. up in a immigrant neighborhood mm. in Manhattan and I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb and I yeah. was at risk all the time because they were these roving kind of gangs groups of older boys who threatened my survival yeah and I learned to see them a block away yeah so I do have a sense of that but it's that's an unusual experience for a white person in this country. Yes, it is. Very unusual. And yes. I didn't and eventually I ended up moving out of that. At least by the time I, I got up here. Yeah. The white one of the whitest places so white. on the planet. <laughs> so white. So white. <laughs> <laughs> and so so comfortably oblivious. Yes. I mean, we we have these these very warm, fuzzy, progressive values. And it's so easy to think that everything is is beautiful and rosy because we all agree 
upon the same values. Yes. But there's another world outside of our borders. Yes. Particularly as you head south. Yeah. And to get back to this thinking about um, all is connected, borders are a completely imaginary thing as well. Like, it, it affects us all on different levels. This, we're all suffering this. And some of us are suffering it so much more. And this complete disconnection is, is a way of suffering this. It's a way of, of protecting ourselves from the trauma that on some level we know is, exists. So you've been feeling this all along. Mm-hmm. Since last Tuesday, <laughs> I have had this very uncomfortable feeling not my usual type of grieving feeling, but but the sense of that I'm picking up on this collective grieving and collective fear yeah. and discomfort. Yeah. That's unlike pretty much anything I've experienced other than on isolated occasions. It's so fascinating. Those that are in white bodies, the the experience that they're having right now about this development. Um, but this development is right in line with all the core values that founded this country. Mm-hmm. It's just that they're, they're not hiding it this time. There's no, no. And it, it really hasn't been hidden all along. It's just, there was, there was a certain awareness and more and more people are becoming aware that, oh, this probably isn't right. But it's not really been hidden, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. To some degree, it was hidden when confronted. Sure. But this time around, it's not even being denied. No. Even when it's confronted. In no. fact, they're they're standing proud and tall yes. about it. And, that's, yes. and I think that's what's so scary for us white people, is that all of a sudden... Our clothes are being ripped off. Yes, and that's a new experience for people in this country. However, those of us that grew up outside of this country, when Americans would visit, um, that's the same attitude. Mm-hmm. The, it's the same entitled, you know, this is ours attitude. Mm-hmm. The victor is yes. always the victor. Yes. Power gets to write the story. Even if it's just a story yeah (laughs) that's all it ever it's always a story yeah 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 everybody has their story and power just gets to write the one that everybody has to agree on so what what's it like being on the other side of the story i mean what what is the story on the other side tell me oh what is the story like not being in the power position yeah for the rest of the world because we we are a tiny minority I mean, us white people. Yes. Tiny minority on the planet, but we have created this incredible illusion of security and stasis. Yes. And the story, the Victor story. Yes. On the other side, it's people that matter. Relationships matter. Um, My identity as an individual is far less important than my identity within a social group that... 
um, is working towards the same things, that personal beliefs are really inconsequential, that the way that we work together ensures our survival, that the way that my body feels and interacts with other bodies is really all that matters. Um, the fact that I can eat once a day is plenty. Um, the f if I have access to water, that is everything because water is life, no dapple. Um, and that's a reality that people deal with every single day is just the basics of life and being able to have access to those that is everything. And in this country, we have this incredible luxury of the sense of individualism and the ability to think that we are kings and islands unto ourselves and able to do whatever we damn please. And it's really fascinating because those of us that see the story from the other side don't see it as a luxury at all. We, we see it as very sad. It's like a sickness. It is a sickness. It's a separation. Yes. Yeah. Something <laughs> that um, we've been tackling a bit on the show recently. Mm. There's this wonderful book, Dispelling Watiko. It's okay. Do you are you familiar? Oh, it's, it's it's based. the The term Watiko is is a Native American term that that refers to that sickness of separation. Yes. Of of what can emerge from an isolated being. Yes. To put it in the simplest terms. Yes. But how how insane it can be. It is. It's it's crazy making. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how poison how poisonous it is. It is. And how it affects everything. Yes. And this is the world that we live in. We because we because as you can see much more clearly, we are all interconnected and we all have to live and share all of this together. Whereas in the white culture, the dominant white culture, we have this illusion that we can go it alone. We have, we've always had plenty of food and water and comfort and safety. And we don't, we can't even imagine the stories of, of the people that are saying, hey, wait a minute, all this is about to end. We can't even believe in it because we have no inkling, we have no experience of that in our history. And I, I would encourage people to ask themselves, why is it that they always have food and water and all of these things? I think the, the answer is, is really painful. I mean, all of these things are being provided on the backs of others that often do not have access to these things. So I think that's really important to remember. It's, you're not just born into this luxury where other people aren't providing for you. And that's a very difficult thing for us white people, us privileged, extremely privileged white people to comprehend. Yes. I mean, it's one thing to think of it intellectually, but to feel it yes. in our bodies, which is really the seat of, of any real meaningfulness. Yes. So, again, it, to us, it, it's like a story fairy tale <laughs> yes you know a dark fairy tale yes even though we're hearing 
about climate change and we're hearing about people dying. We see images of people dying all over the world, devastation. We're so isolated, so insulated, that it's still a distant story. Yes. It's still unreal. Yes. Even those of us who who profess to understand that it is real, we still don't get it. Right, because we embody the colonized values and the choices that we make on a daily basis are complicit in continuing the system. Exactly. Yeah. And it's been handed down to us generation after generation yes. with no, no meaningful counter-experience. Correct. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Jenny Martino, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been profound. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>